Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, I'm Andrew Hill, and welcome to the War Room podcast. Today, I'm joined by Professor Jackie Witt. Jackie Witt, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here on the other side of the table. Yes, Jackie is our War Room podcast producer, so she's a frequent interviewer, and because she's the interviewee this time, I thought I'd give her a very good introduction. So Jackie Witt is a member of the Department of National Security Strategy here at the U.S. Army War College. She joined the War College in the fall of 2016 after spending several years teaching at the Air War College. Right. Jackie is a is a historian of, of some renown. Her book, Bringing God to Men, American Military Chaplains and the Vietnam War, won the Richard W. Leopold Prize by the Organization of American Historians. Uh, she's also an outstanding teacher and a great colleague. So Jackie, welcome Thanks. to the War Room. Now I know why people are embarrassed when, when their bios come up um, yeah. on these. Yeah, she, she is... Uh, we are we are lucky to have her here at the War College, and and Jackie and I have been wanting to talk about about William Tecumseh Sherman for some time. He's a fascinating figure, and this is a part of our ongoing series on strategic leaders, great captains of the past. Um, Sherman, so uh, Little Hart, the the British military theorist, said Sherman was the first modern general. So first, Jackie, what does that mean? And then second. Is that accurate? Sure. No, it's a great question. And historians will almost always start with a discussion of what the word means. So the key here is modern, right? And we have to understand uh, what Liddell Hart meant by that and what it means in the context of looking at Sherman. Because depending on where you where you are in history, um, the modern era can start in lots of different lots of different places, right? And so for warfare. Um, the way modern gets sort of deployed as a concept is often in the context of the of the world wars in the 20th century that that really modern war um comes about in the in the 20th century and it is the combination of political and military the combination of sort of psychological the uh the idea of will comes in um but you put that together with the technological innovations um, of the Industrial Revolution, of gunpowder, of transportation revolutions and all of that. And it's really the, the, the confluence of these two things that happen. And so obviously the American Civil War is a little bit early for some of that. Um, and yet we, we see what I would say are hints to a, a modern concept of war that really involves both the the will and the capability to fight in a in a modern industrial society, but also the political um, environment in which in which those wars take place. And so, is Sherman the first modern general? Um, I'm I'm actually not so sure that's that's the case. Certainly, Sherman is taking ideas that have been used. For a long time, for a long time, Sherman is not the first person to come up with a sort of scorched earth no. concept that's pretty in old. warfare. That one's been that's around pretty, for a long time. That's pretty <laughs> old. Uh, nor is Sherman the first one to understand that the psychology of the enemy is important. And frankly, it's unclear 
um, whether Sherman, sort of what the overall effects of Sherman's campaign are on the on the Civil War as a whole. Um, I think it is reasonable to suggest that the war could have probably been won just with Grant's campaign against Lee in, in Northern Virginia, um, and that the the actual impact of Sherman's march to the sea, for example, is um, is actually less than we maybe give it credit for, and certainly less than Southerners uh, give it credit for. There's a great story about the the parade that they held in D.C. right after the victory in the war and all the worries that people had about Sherman's army coming into March. In, In some sense, when you talk about psychology, right, his psychological presence was so large that there was... It seems like even the North w- was afraid right. of Sherman. Yeah, he, because they think he's sort of unstable, which yeah. which we can we can talk about a little bit more. He probably was, um, and so he he basically he does unleash his army. He says, right, leave nothing, um, burn everything, even if it's of questionable material valuable value to the Confederacy. Um, and so, you know, they, they call some of the towns that, that the army marches through Chimneyville, right? Because the chimneys are the only things that are left. And so you can see the sort of psychological impact that this has. And I think that psychological impact goes, you can find it even today in the, in the Deep South. There is probably no uh, Union general who is as reviled as, as Sherman, uh, especially in Georgia and South Carolina in particular. And so the North, um, the, the union, um, yeah, I think that they're, they're sort of right to be worried because what happens, can you, can you contain something that you have unleashed? Can you get the army back in control? And I think this is maybe where Sherman does deserve actually quite a bit of, of credit is that the, that it's not, um, the destruction is nearly, nearly complete in that 60 mile swath of Georgia and the Carolinas that he is marching through, um, but he is—he's able to stop it uh, once once the the wartime um, effect has been has been produced, and he does set out very uh, very clear sort of rules about the treatment of rebel um, women and children, for example. So there are there are restraints. They are just. Um, not restrained in terms of the destruction of property in particular. When, when I uh, read that quote from Little Heart the first time, I actually, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, a military expert really by background. So on the operational slash tactical side, for me to understand the implications of something like, yeah, first modern general, uh, I, I've, I have a hard time with that. But, but I did think, you know Sherman's personal philosophy as it evolved his his attitude towards war does seem distinctly modern much more so mm-hmm. than what we have from say Lee or Stonewall Jackson right. or other figures so you have you have Sherman saying stuff like war is cruelty there is no use trying to reform it uh, the one you brought to my attention i confess without shame that i am tired and sick of war its glory is all moonshine even success, the most brilliant is over dead and mangled bodies. Yeah. And Sherman, I think, gets this from from the very beginning, from his earliest um, experiences. He has limited combat experience uh, in the Mexican-American War, but he basically 
or excuse me, in the Second Seminole War. He basically misses the Mexican-American War. Uh, but he has early combat experience in the Western theater, in the Trans-Mississippi theater, uh, in the in the Civil War, and he he gets it very early on that this is going to be a long war. He understands that he understands that the psych- the psychology of war matters, and he he is intent on trying to get the war over as as quickly as as possible. And he understands that the way to do that is is to push it to its natural limits, sort of as fast as it can be done. And he is, he is not a romantic. Uh, he is uh, sort of in the Victorian era, but he, he doesn't romanticize war. He doesn't, um, he doesn't think that it is, again, he doesn't think it's all, it's all glory. And this does, I think, make him different from some of his, some of his contemporaries. People who observed Sherman thought he was, again, sort of thought he was maybe a little bit mentally unstable, uh, mentally, he had he struggled with depression. He struggled with uh, insecurities and self doubt and um, self confidence problems throughout his career. But he loved he loved the army and he loved um, he loved the United States and he felt a deep sense of betrayal by the Southerners who um, who who declared secession. Uh, and he thought that that was was obviously. Um, something that could not be done and, and had to be stopped. And so once once he, he went through all of that sort of mental calculation about what the purpose of the war was, um, he was, he was all in and trying to figure out how to bring it to a close. Do you get a sense, so he does, as you mentioned, have significant uh, emotional challenges. Yeah. How does he engender loyalty, you know, it seems like in war you would want to have confidence that your commander is not going to, you know, freak out and right. fall apart. So, so how does he manage that balance? Sure, I think it's it's a little bit unclear because he 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 basically leaves the um, the field for a few weeks uh, in the Western Theater, um, and and they send him basically to a hospital to to recover. He and he's pretty he's pretty open about the fact that he has essentially this mental breakdown. Um, and so the the flaws for Sherman are just are right at the, they're just right at the right at the surface, mm-hmm. um, but he also engenders loyalty in his in his men. I think in part by by being sort of forthright with them and and letting them do what they what they what they need to do in terms of of accomplishing the mission. He he's called Uncle Billy by his you know by his troops. He's he's pretty well loved. Um, Maybe because as a, he as has real humanity, right? I mean, sometimes a leader who, in some way, reveals humanity, uh, human weakness in a way that isn't really dangerous to mm-hmm. the people that, that that are working for that person can maybe foster greater loyalty. And I think Sherman also understands, um, he understands his own limits and he, I think understands his own place in, in the war. Um, he, he is convinced of his own capability. He graduated sixth in his class of 1840 at West Point. Um, He was, he was quite, he was quite smart. Um, he thinks he's a better tactician, than Grant, he thinks he's a better strategist than Grant. He thinks he knows he's smarter than Grant, um, and yet he doesn't want Grant's job. Uh, he he at one point says, "Right, I have all the rank I need," um, and he sort of says, "Look, this is this is where I I be, I, I belong." Um, 
And I think that's I think that's telling. So he's not overly um, overly ambitious either. And of course, after the Civil War, he becomes uh, the general in chief of the army. So he's 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 in charge of the of the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but he he always understands sort of what his role is, and he's always happy to play that sort of supporting role uh, to Grant in particular. Yeah, so you brought up Grant. Their relationship is fascinating. I mean, another great quote from Sherman. I am a damn sight smarter than Grant. I know more about military history, strategy, and grand tactics than he does. I'll tell you where he beats me, though, and where he beats the world. He doesn't give a damn about what the enemy does out of his sight, but it scares me like hell. <laughs> yeah, and again, he, he sort of knows what his what his limits are and where where he shouldn't, um, perhaps where he shouldn't tread. And I think that that's a... That's not a very common attribute, I would say, in many very senior military officers. They're an interesting pair, right? Because both Grant and Sherman, I mean, I guess if you contrast with maybe the two most notable commanders of the South, Lee and Jackson, maybe we could throw like Bedford Forrest mm-hmm. in there or something. But, you know, so Lee and Jackson, I sometimes it's like hard for me to imagine them as actually moving like they... They're sort of like in granite or something, right? There's this, it's hard to get a sense of their humanity. But then you have Sherman, this redheaded kind of little too much Yeah, sun. wiry and underweight. You know, and... He, he, yeah, he looks a little grizzled and emaciated all the time. And, and uh, you know, like he just rolled out of bed. And, and as you mentioned, his, his emotional troubles, his frankness. And then Grant, who on his best day also kind of looks like he rolled out of bed and <laughs> struggles with, with alcohol abuse. And and the two of them also are sort of underdogs, right, in the beginning of the war. It's not like they're... Yeah, they're out in the West. They're out yeah. in the West. They're in a theater that doesn't matter right. as much. And in the, in the grand scheme of, of like things, the B team it matters the C a team. lot. Yeah. Uh, and I think historians have really started to, to emphasize what happens in the Trans-Mississippi West yeah. as critical to the history of the war. Um, but they're they're not the ones who have the confidence of Lincoln from the very beginning, uh, right? It takes Lincoln and Grant a while to, to link up. Um, one of my... And the, the sort of loyalty that they have... Uh, is forged over over disagreeing, you know, quite quite a lot. Um, they're on opposite sides of arguments in the in the Western theater. Um, but by the by the end of the war, end of the war, and then in into the post war period, Sherman is unrelentingly loyal to um, to Grant. Right? He he says Sherman has a way with words, so we keep we keep quoting him uh, because I think there's there's a lot to a lot to learn from this. But he says, General Grant is a great general. I know him well. He stood by me when I was crazy. I stood by him when he was drunk. And now, sir, we will stand by each other always. And if, if that's not that's great. A, the sort of, a, it's like you can imagine like a buddy comedy, like being, yeah. being uh, written about these, about these two. But they are, they're deeply human and they're deeply flawed, but they are, I think they're in their own way, both geniuses at understanding the fundamental nature of, of war, understanding what is required um, to win a war, and I think this is this is where we where we see Lee's flaws are at a pretty fundamental level. Understanding what the war is about and understanding what what is going to be required for the Confederacy to to win um, to win the war, and that's a that's a it's a pretty big flaw for a general of an army to have. Yeah, you mentioned Grant and Sherman's disagreements. One of the, uh, you know, there's a, a case 
where Sherman, at the start of the Vicksburg campaign, when Grant is planning to break free of basically his supplies, and uh, Sherman disagrees, you know, he, he mm-hmm. so much so that he files a formal protest, right, right with I guess, the adjutant general of, of Illinois or something because of the nature of Grant's service. Yeah, and, how he's how he's appointed. Yeah, and... so so you know, and 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 Gr- he tells Grant. Grant knows that this is going on, and and Grant basically says, okay. And then Sherman, once he sort of sends that letter, he says, okay, what do you want me to yeah. do? And it doesn't destroy the what relationship. Do you, what do you want me to do, boss? Right? Like, I'm, I've, I've filed my complaint. I've told you what I yeah. think. I've, I've right, spoken truth to power and, and all of that. It's pretty extraordinary um, how their relationship not only survives that, but sort of grows through I think that. It, I think it actually sort of thrives under, under that. Um, and that they, they always will, they'll tell each other, what they think Grant is not in favor of Sherman's March to the Sea campaign when he sort of proposes that. And I think at the end of the day, they both come to trust each other's judgment and they both come to trust um, that they that they can say what they, they think, but that they also understand um, how the other one is thinking and is, is going to operate. And that they, again, at the end of the day, they trust they trust each other's judgment. So why is he worth remembering as a as a military leader? Yeah. So I um I like Sherman so much I named my cat after him, right? I have I have General Sherman. That's profound love. Um yeah. it is. And to name a cat who's from Alabama oh. General Sherman. Uh it's a it's a it's a thing. Um <laughs> for our Navy listeners out there, I also have Admiral Farragut, so it's a it's a it's a joint it's a joint um, endeavor at, at my house. They do combined arms maneuver or something. They do. Like I call my house joint base wit. So <laughs> I call them the joint chiefs of cats, even though that is terribly anachronistic. That's hilarious. I do not care because it's a solid joke. Um, that is pretty good. So, so I think Sherman is worth remembering in part because of his, um, to me, I think he's one of the, the, the people in military history, who understands the fundamental nature of war, perhaps better, I think, than most, and understands that the um, he understands the issue of a sort of loyalty to country and to cause. He understands um, that war is terrible, and it is human, and it is it is one of the most awful things humans can do. Um, And within that, Sherman has a pretty clear sense of what must be done to achieve the political goal of the war. And I think it's it's important in part because Sherman is not uh, a sort of paragon of virtue. He's a like 19th century racist SOB, right? He, He doesn't, he does, it's not that he, wants to um advocate racial justice yeah he's not advocating for equality for 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 african-americans um he frees slaves because he thinks that is it harms the adversary adversary, right it's not a it's not a it's not out of a a sense of of loyalty to them or a of fundamental equality uh later in the 19th century right he is the general of the army um in the in the western indian wars uh which are some of the the most sort of inhumane and cruel 
uh, wars that the United States fights, and that legacy is is deeply important. Sherman is the one who we get the the sort of saying that the only good Indian is a dead Indian. That's that's a that's a derivation from one of the things that Sherman has said. So we we shouldn't we shouldn't think that he's like a good guy. Um, he is of his he's of his time, and we can understand that in in context. But in terms of what we might call sort of military genius. I think Sherman, Sherman just at a fundamental level gets it. And he understands, um, again, both his place in that and what, what armies must do to, to win wars. And I think that is worth remembering. So Dr. Jacqueline Witt, thank you very much for joining us today in War Room. Thanks for your insights. Absolutely. It's great to be here and happy to be on the other side of the table. <laughs> Well, Jackie, thank you very much. And thank you listeners for joining us. We hope you'll join us next time in the War Room. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.